You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome everyone back to the podcast. We have an interesting twist. Often we've been talking about what is the Bible? And today our topic is what are Jewish views of the Bible? So a little bit of a twist on that. And why is that important? Well, who's our guest today? Oh. That's sort of important, too. I guess. Do we have one? Mm, do we have one? I think we do. Oh, yes. So <laughs> Benjamin Summer, who is a professor of Bible and ancient Semitic languages at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York City, right. is here to talk. And it's a fascinating conversation. Yeah, and it's a huge topic. I, you know, I, I could say this about so many things, but I'll say it about this. There are a few things that have pushed me more and open more doors for me in my thinking about the Bible than watching Jews do it, quite frankly. Just watching Jews read the Bible and, and explain what they mean and just watching them interpret it. And that was my experience in graduate school at Harvard with, with James Kugel and John Levinson, for example. And Ben Summer very much is also a, a, a very, uh, becoming a very dominant voice in sort of, I guess, peeling back the layers of the diverse ways in which Jews have handled the Bible. And the value for me in that is that, boy, oh boy, is it helpful for Christians, too, to think differently about the Bible. And I think Jewish views tend to be much more complex and much more affirming of the humanity of Scripture and not defending it as much. Now, of course, there are diverse Jewish points of view, just like diverse Christian points of view. I don't mean to paint everything with the same brush, but still. But the, I mean, even you know, our previous episode with A.J. Levine, she right. really paints the picture, and I think Ben does a good job of right. also reinforcing that uh, our bro Jewish brothers and sisters can teach us a lot, not just about what's in the Bible, but how to even approach it. They've been thinking about this for well, longer than Christianity, and, 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 and we share three-quarters of the same Bible. And, uh, you know, th there's, you know I, I never walk away from these kinds of conversations not thinking differently about something that I thought I knew. All right. Well, let's get into that conversation. All right. Disagreeing about exactly how to interpret God's will, that itself, that intellectual activity of disagreeing about, debating about, studying further the interpretation, the right interpretation of God's will, for us Jews, that's, that's actually a form of worship. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. 
Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Ben, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We're excited to have you here. How are you? I'm doing great. And you're armed with your tea. I got my cup of tea, so I'm ready to talk. That's now anything can happen. Well, this is wild here. You've got your tea in your hand. Let's go. Okay. okay. Well, you know, listen, here's the, you know, the topic is, is, you know, what is the Bible? And uh, that's sort of a big issue for me and just my own thinking, my spiritual life and my academic life. And I know it is for you as well. And um, let, me, let me tell you a question that I get a lot from my students at Eastern University. Mm-hmm. I try to bring Judaism into the conversation as much as I can. But sometimes like an, an, an interesting exegetical point will come up, an interpretive point about the Bible. And they'll ask me, well, how would Jews handle this? And I say, in about a thousand different ways, it depends on which Jew you talk to. Just like when people say, how do Christians handle it? My goodness gracious, there's so many different varieties of Christian. So, um, you know, when, when we had a chance to meet at, at, at the Society of Biblical Literature, we had a nice breakfast, and you explained a lot of things to me, very helpful. You gave a taxonomy of Judaism. Of, of different varieties and different brands. And maybe you can run through that for the benefit of our listeners. Sure. So in the modern world, uh, as has happened in, uh, especially in Protestant Christianity, and in many ways, as a result of the influence of Protestant Christianity on Jews, several different types of uh, Judaism have developed. Really several responses to modernity and the challenges that modern ways of thinking, modern scientific, modern philosophical ways of thinking have posed to Judaism, uh, these three, three, main, three or four main responses to modernity have emerged in Judaism. Um, I suppose moving from sort of the right to the left, from the most traditionalist to the least traditionalist, uh, we could start off with orthodoxy. Uh, Orthodox Judaism, first of all, continues to believe that the, the five books of Moses, the, uh, the Torah, as we often call them in Hebrew, uh, were written by God and dictated to Moses. Uh, moreover, also that a lot of additional traditions were given by God to Moses orally, in addition to the five books of Moses. Um, and Moses then passed on both the text he had written down and these oral traditions um, those oral traditions, along with the text of the five books of Moses, eventually develop into a system of Jewish law. Um, already 2,000 years ago, systems of Jewish law existed. Um, and the Orthodox movement in modern Judaism says that that system of law, first of all, it's still law. Jews have to obey it. So the rules having to do with what one can eat, when one observes the Sabbath, how one observes the Sabbath. Those laws that are on the books, we've got to obey them. 
And Orthodox Jews tend to be very, very hesitant about changing the law because the origin of the law uh, comes from a divine revelation. The details of the text that the law is based on come from heaven. The extent to which human beings can get into the system and start making changes to the legal system is very, very limited. So Orthodox Jews tend to be, I, I think, the most identifiably religious um, in the way sometimes that they dress, head covering that they're using. Uh, many Orthodox Jews are really just at a glance, you can see that they're Orthodox. It's not true of all of them, but it's true of many of them. And they're really the most traditionalist uh, of, the, uh, of the modern groups. The conservative movement, which is what I'm affiliated with, I teach at the rabbinical school of the American conservative movement, the Jewish Theological Seminary. The conservative movement agrees with orthodoxy that the law is central to Judaism and that Jews are supposed to obey the law. So on questions of what we're allowed to eat, how we obey the Sabbath, we're pretty similar to the orthodox movement. But we differ in that we don't necessarily think that all of the words of the Bible, maybe even any of the words of the Bible, come directly from God, come directly from heaven. Rather, we see Jewish tradition, both the oral traditions and even the written parts of the Bible, as really more of a human interpretation of divine revelation, a human reaction to the way that God appeared to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. And therefore, since from the very get-go, Human beings were reacting to what God taught. Human beings were interpreting what God taught. That means that from the very beginning, there is a very large human element in shaping the specific laws that the Jewish people are supposed to observe. And because we in the conservative movement believe that that's the case, it follows that the extent to which Jews in each generation can continue interpreting and therefore can modify the legal system is going to be much, much greater than it is in orthodoxy. So I'd say that conservatism agrees with orthodoxy on the status, the binding status of the law, but conservatism has a different theory of revelation that allows us to get into the system of the law and begin making changes. If you're curious, we could talk more about what some of those changes would be. But let me move on to the, the, a third type of modern Judaism that began to emerge at the very beginning of the 1800s in Germany. and um, is thriving to this very day, which is the reform movement. Especially the early reform rabbis and scholars um, made the claim that Jewish law, as is found in, let's say, in, in books like the Talmud and as it's based in the Bible, is no longer fully binding. That rather that modern Jews have to make decisions about which parts of the law um, if any, are meaningful to them, and those parts of the law that are meaningful to them are the parts that they'll use to express their love and loyalty to God. But the law now becomes much more a matter of choice and less a matter of a, uh, of a binding obligation. Uh, the Reform Movement also, like the Conservative Movement, believes that the Bible is a human-authored text that reacts to some sort of divine revelation. And so you can see where, let's say, the conservative movement is sort of similar to, or, or, to orthodoxy on the status of the law, the binding status of the law, but similar to Reform Judaism on the nature of revelation. Um, the Reform movement also, very much to their credit, 
puts a tremendous amount of emphasis on social and economic justice, on questions of helping the downtrodden, helping the poor. If there's any part of the law that, that never loses its binding force, it's the laws that require us to fight for the downtrodden and to help the poor. And the reform movement, if you go to any almost any reform synagogue, you'll see that, that they, they really take that ideology very, very seriously. Finally, I'd like to mention a fourth response. And here we're getting into a response that I think is different than what you'll find in Christianity and especially in Protestant Christianity. And this is a response that results from the fact that Judaism is not only a religion, but is also an ethnicity or a nationality. I mean, Jews don't really fit into Protestant concepts of religion very well, insofar as we're not only a religion, but we're also a group of people. And um, as a result, it's possible to be a secular Jew, to be a really identifying proud Jew who doesn't believe in God. It's it's possible to be an atheist Jew in a way that it's probably not quite possible to be an atheist Christian. But there are plenty of Jews in the world, especially in Israel, who are not really religious, who may not believe in God, may not believe in revelation, may not believe in the binding authority of the law, but still have a strong sense of belonging to the Jewish people, to the nation Israel. And those Jews, let's say secular Jews, may have a a very, very serious commitment to Judaism, to learning about Jewish traditions, to studying the Bible as an ancient Jewish text, even though they see the Bible as being entirely human and not even as necessarily being a reaction to some divine revelation. So that's a real quick sketch of four different approaches to Judaism and modernity. People in each of those four groups could spend the next hour explaining how I got them wrong. But at least for, uh, for starters, that sketch, I think, is enough to get us going. <laughs> the, the overlap between this Jewish taxonomy and the Christian taxonomy is alarmingly, mm-hmm. <laughs> alarmingly similar. But mm-hmm. like orthodoxy, conservatism, and reform movement, I, I guess a, a um, hopefully not overly simplistic way of putting it in Christian terms is fundamentalism some brand of evangelicalism or progressive Christianity and then liberalism. And you're absolutely right. We don't have that fourth, do we? Because we don't have an ethnicity that binds us, which is part of the point of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. That's, that's extremely interesting. My goodness gracious, Ben. Thank you. Um, so, and you're the conservative group. Mm-hmm. And how do you get along with other conservatives pretty well? Because um, you say some pretty radical things, I think. Yeah, you know, I tell you, if anything, I think a lot of contemporary conservative Jews might say that I skewed things too far to the right, too traditionalist in the way uh-huh. that I define conservatism. Um, I, I think you could find people in the conservative movement who would be more ambiguous about the, the, um, the binding force of the law than I was. Um, but uh, if anything, I think... Some people might disagree with me more from the left. I'm not sure how much people would disagree with me from the right, although maybe some of what I say radically, but I just come out and, and say, maybe some people do get a little bit surprised by it. But sometimes when I'm talking about revelation, even when I sound a little bit radical, I think that I'm describing what conservative Jews are really assuming, even if they're sometimes afraid to say it out loud. Mm-hmm. Well, let, let's, let's jump right into that 
Ben, I have just that idea right when you said it struck me as, as really interesting and maybe where, you know, Pete's mapping of evangelicalism might part ways a little bit. So just talk a little bit about this theory of revelation and how law is central, um, but how that is different than the orthodox that you explain in terms of revelation. Mm -hmm. So the theory of revelation that I just sketched out is especially associated with several modern Jewish, uh, modern Jewish theologians, some of whom are associated more or less with a conservative movement. I'm thinking of a, a German Jewish philosopher named Franz Rosenzweig, who talked about how the wording of the Bible is all a human response to what happened at Mount Sinai and to God's ongoing revelations in the biblical period to other Jews, to other prophets. But the actual words we get in the Bible are not God's words. Basically, for Rosenzweig, the core command to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai and throughout all time is basically expressed, probably not in words, but the core demand that's expressed is that we should love God. Perhaps also part of that core demand is that we should love our neighbors as well, but especially that we sh the first core command is that we should love God. And according to this Jewish philosopher, Franz Rosenzweig, what we're getting, first of all, in the Torah, the five books of, Mos of Moses, and then also in the, the whole rest of Jewish tradition down to the current day, are ways that the Jewish communities over the ages have fleshed that out. What does it mean to be to be loyal to God, to love God, it means that everything that we put into our bodies, everything that we eat, we think about God. We force ourselves to think about God, not only by, by saying a benediction before and after eating to thank God for the food, but also by deciding that we'll eat certain things and we won't eat other things. So all the, the dietary laws of Judaism, the laws of kashrut, as they're called in Hebrew, that's one example of the fleshing out of what it means to try to love God on a daily basis. We eat almost every day, except for a few fast days during the year. And eating is one of the most you know, important primal human necessities. And so we turn that daily action into something that we use to express our acknowledgement of God and our love of God. And for, for Rosenzweig, this would be true of all the other commandments of Judaism. So Rosenzweig sometimes distinguishes between what he calls a command and a commandment, or a command and a law. The command comes from heaven. That comes from God, probably not in words, but that's the command that we should love God. The commandments, the laws of Jewish tradition, those are all the ways that Jewish communities, Jewish sages over the ages have specified that command to love God into a lot of much, much more specific, much more narrow um, laws that that are the heart of the Jewish religion. That's an idea associated with Rosenzweig, who lived uh, in, in Germany before World War II. Um, some of the same ideas are picked up by Abraham Joshua Heschel, really a fascinating, fascinating um, uh, character, born in a Hasidic, a, a very, very ultra-Orthodox family in Eastern Europe, in Poland. Uh, he actually then went and studied in Berlin, where he got a PhD in philosophy, he also got ordination actually as a reform rabbi, interestingly enough. Everybody else in his family, um, they're ultra-Orthodox rabbis, but his actual ordination was from the reform movement in Germany. 
Um, he then came to study, I'm sorry, to, to teach uh, in the United States, first at the Reform Rabbinical Seminary. Um, the Reform Rabbinical Seminary in the very late 1930s was just giving visas to all sorts of Jewish scholars in Europe, regardless of whether they were Orthodox or conservative or Reform, just so that they would have visas so they could get out of Europe. And thus the Reform movement in the United States really saved Heschel's life. He was the only member of, uh, of his immediate family, who's, uh, or actually one of two members of his immediate family, uh, to survive the Holocaust. Um, but his theology really was to the right of the Reform movement. And so after teaching at the Reform Rabbinical School in Cincinnati, Ohio, for several years, he moved to the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, the conservative seminary, and then spent many, many decades there. Heschel, like Rosenzweig, sees the Bible itself, the rabbinic literature, the Talmud, for example, all Jewish thought and creativity as a response to God's revelation to the nation Israel at Mount Sinai. Heschel's a little more ambiguous about whether some of the words might have come from heaven or whether all the words in the Bible are a human response. He doesn't go quite as far as Rosenzweig in saying that all the words are human. He kind of leaves that open, I think, in a very honest way. Uh, Heschel sometimes sounds a little more similar to Rosenzweig and more radical, a little less similar than, to Rosenzweig, a bit less radical, and that he may feel that some of the words in the Bible really were written by God. I think that when he's ambiguous about this, he's being very honest because he really doesn't know and he doesn't want to come down clearly on one side or the other um, uh, 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 on this question. But by and large, he also sees most of Jewish tradition as a human interpretation of God's revelation. And thus, I think Heschel was open to the idea that, um, that Jews might change the law, might allow the law to adapt through, through the generations. Uh, his own daughter, Susanna Heschel, in her own right, is a very, very important scholar of religion and of modern Jewish and Christian relations. Uh, she's, a, she's a modern historian. Um, his daughter uh, reported that, in fact, he encouraged her to apply to rabbinical school at JTS. Now, this is long before JTS started admitting women, uh, but that would be an example of how he's able to imagine changes in Jewish law, perhaps on that particular issue, he was maybe a few decades ahead of his time. Um, he's able to imagine changes in Jewish law because from the very beginning, from the time of Moses, there was a very strong human element in the composition of the law. So it would make sense that even us today, we're able to um, continue interpreting, continue, therefore, modifying, adding to Jewish law. And that would be the big difference between us and orthodoxy, between conservatism and orthodoxy. Especially nowadays on issues of sexuality and gender, there's a big difference. Um, conservative, let's say at the conservative rabbinical school at JTS, um, all of our students are expected to, expected to pray daily, to wear phylacteries, which are these uh, things that we wear in the morning service. In that regard, we're the same as, as an Orthodox school. Um, if you drive on the Sabbath, uh, which is forbidden by Jewish law, you're not allowed to come to the rabbinical school at JTS. In that re regard, we're similar to Orthodoxy. The difference is, though, that we'll, we'll admit female students, we'll admit gay students. Um, in Orthodoxy, that's not going to happen. Yes, wow. That, I mean, that, this, this view of the Bible that you're expressing in, in, um, in, in the conservative movement, um, mm -hmm. I think that seems to encourage innovation 
in how you think about the Bible and how you, I mean, the word we use in evangelicalism is how you apply the Bible, mm-hmm. how biblical teaching interacts with your life. Um, and I mean, flesh that out just a little bit. There's an innovation. That innovative idea comes from within the Bible, doesn't it? I think it does. Okay, explain um, that. So the, I think in a few ways. First of all, in, in a lot of my own work and a lot of my own writing, I've taken a very close look at the narratives of Revelation in the book of Exodus, in Leviticus, uh, and in Deuteronomy. And I think that when we read those narratives, especially Exodus chapters 19 and 20 very closely, there's a great deal of ambiguity around the question, how much of the Ten Commandments, how much of the revelation of the law at Sinai did the Jewish people hear directly from God? And how much of the Ten Commandments, how much of that revelation of the law did the people hear through the intermediation of Moses, of a human figure who interprets, who passes on the divine teaching to the people? Now, I think that that's very important because if the nation Israel heard all of the Ten Commandments in verbal form, that is, in actual words, from God, from, as it were, the mouth of God, then we Jews knew at Sinai that God really speaks in words. God speaks in specifics. And therefore, for all the rest of the laws that we all agree came through Moses' intermediation, we can understand when Moses says to us, hey, I spoke to God last night, and he's got some, some specific regulations concerning our diet. Here they are. We can understand that all of those specific regulations come directly from God. On the other hand, if all of the law from the very beginning, including the Ten Commandments, comes through Moses, and maybe through other sages, through Aaron, who is, who is described as getting some of the laws in Leviticus, um, through Elazar, Aaron's grandson, who's uh, Aaron's son, excuse me, who's described as getting the laws, uh, some of the laws in Numbers. If it's all coming through intermediation, well, then maybe that means that the human contribution to the law began right at the beginning. Maybe that means that the human interpretation of the law is something that was built in from second number zero, you know, from from before the first second. Of, of our reception of the law. So the question of whether we get the law directly from God's mouth in verbal form or only through intermediation in the specific verbal form that we've got it, a lot rides on that question. And what's interesting is that if you look at Exodus 19 and 20, again and again in the Hebrew text, there are ambiguities that force us to ask that question, but don't allow us to come up with a definite answer to that question. So, for example, a, a word that appears in Exodus 19 and 20 seven times, and seven, that's not a coincidence, seven times means the Bible, the, the Bible wants us to note this repetition and to note that it's an important repetition since the number seven is such an important number in the Torah, in the, um, uh, starting from you know, the seven days of creation. That law, the, the word shows up seven times, but it's not clear whether the word in question, the word kol, means voice or thunder. And there's hints at times that it means voice. There's hints at times that it means thunder. If it's thunder, then God spoke to Israel in thunder, but not in words. God was an overwhelming, commanding presence. But Moses had to translate that thunder into the specific words that we get in the, in the Torah. 
in which case the human element is there from the beginning, which I think means that a human element of interpretation and modification may legitimately continue up until the present and into the future. On the other hand, if, if coal means voice, then God spoke with a human voice in, in words, in actual words. What's interesting is that that ambiguity is not resolvable in Exodus 19 through 20. One interpretation, I think, leads us in a conservative direction, Jewishly speaking. One interpretation leads us in an orthodox direction. If coal is thunder, I think that leads us to the idea that human beings had to interpret God's revelation into specifics from the very beginning. That leads to the conservative movement. If coal means voice, that means that God spoke with real specific information from the very beginning. That leads us to orthodoxy. Exodus chapters 19 and 20 don't actually endorse either conservatism or orthodoxy. Exodus 19 and 20, with this ambiguity about the word coal, is endorsing the debate between the conservative and the orthodox movements. It's the debate itself that is getting legitimacy from the, the text of Exodus. Well, I see, I think, Ben, I think that alone is fascinating, mm -hmm. that the Bible itself promotes, let's say, debate uh, oh, yeah. because of ambiguity. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact <laughs> instruction level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com 
using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Sure. And that's just one of, of five ambiguities showing up in Exodus 19 and 20. The other four ambiguities, they all lead in the same direction, to the same question of how much of the revelation did the people hear verbally, and they, they never allow us to answer that question definitely. The text wants us to be engaging in this debate. And there's a lot of other ways that you see this, uh, this idea of debate and development. From the point of view of a modern Bible critic such as myself, um, you know, I believe in the documentary hypothesis, the idea that there are four main documents that were put together to create the five books of Moses. You can see that the authors of these four documents, to some degree, they know each other. They know about each other. They react to each other. Deuteronomy takes laws from the book of Exodus, laws that I think are several generations earlier. And on the one hand, Deuteronomy endorses those laws by echoing them, by repeating them, but Deuteronomy also very, very often alters the laws according to certain humane values. Um, so you've got both a continuation of the, of the legal tradition going on in Deuteronomy, but you've got a modification of it. Deuteronomy is clearly agreeing with most of the older law code in Exodus chapters basically 20 through 23, but Deuteronomy is disagreeing with certain specifics and modifying certain specifics. Um, parts of Leviticus um, are also aware of Deuteronomy, but sometimes arguing with Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy is sometimes arguing with Leviticus. These were different scribal schools in ancient Israel who knew about each other, who agreed that there's a covenant, a contract between God and the nation Israel. They agreed that the Israelites have to obey a law as their side of this covenant, but they disagree on some aspects of what the law actually is and on some other theological points as well. Right. And you can hear them basically talking back and forth to each other. So Ben, what, what allows, so I'm trying to kind of channeling a lot of the Christian tradition where the, the authority <clears throat> of the text starts to break down if you allow for this, uh, the fact that the text itself is debating, this ambiguity is built in. So what kind of components of, of a Jewish faith, whether it's conservative, orthodox, or otherwise, allows for, or celebrates, or promotes this idea that the text can still be central, meaningful, authoritative, and yet have these disagreements built into them and mm -hmm. can be made Got sense of? Gotcha. You know, to answer that, let me step back for a second and let me point out really a core difference between a Jewish conception of the Bible and a Protestant conception of the Bible. Um, and this is going to be true of really of, of all Jews. It's certainly very, very true of Orthodox Jews. This one um, is not specific to one movement or another. But in Judaism, um, the Bible is sacred alongside a whole additional set of books, a whole additional literature that you might refer to as being tradition. And the, the Bible and tradition work together to be the sacred literature of the Jewish people. Um, we don't have any idea of sola scriptura. For us, tradition, in particular, the, the, the works of rabbinic tradition, books like the Talmud, the Mishnah, there's a whole, a whole other set of bookshelves, those are also sacred and authoritative. So in this regard, 
Jews are much, much more similar to Catholics and to Eastern Orthodox Christians, uh, for whom tradition, whether it's Aquinas or Augustine or Chrysostom, are very, very important alongside the Bible. Similarly, for Jews, the Talmud is enormously important uh, right alongside the Bible. And the truth of the matter is that on a practical level, the way we observe Judaism is much more based on the Talmud, on rabbinic literature, than on the Bible. A lot of the specific laws, especially that Orthodox and conservative Jews obey, are actually spelled out in Talmudic literature much more clearly than they are in biblical literature, and some of them aren't found in biblical literature at all. So for us, for, for Jews generally, you might, you might almost, you really could almost say scripture includes not just the Bible, but a whole lot of other later works written by the classical rabbis, that if scripture is what is sacred and authoritative, in Judaism, that's not just the Bible, that's, that's also, and in some ways even more so, rabbinic literature. So Functionally, having said that, uh, maybe we should pause here, but, but I had to kind of get that piece of information yeah. out there before responding to your question, Jared. But maybe I should pause and just see if you want to follow up on this, on this one point before I go on to your question. I just want to make sure you don't miss that second point. But if Pete No, go ahead. No, I, I, it, my point can wait. Go ahead. Um, so, okay, so, so, going to, um, so going to that question, what allows us to, to hear debate in the Bible, hear disagreement in the Bible, and not get all freaked out? Um, well, here, first of all, here I am going to go back to answering more from a specifically conservative point of view. I think many Orthodox authorities would say that, no, the Bible, especially the five books of Moses, come from heaven. Therefore, they don't engage in debate because debate is in some senses a sign of fallibility, right? You don't debate right. something unless you're not sure. Mm -hmm. And presumably God was sure. So for, for Orthodox Jews who believe that at least the five books of Moses and, and to some degree the rest of the Bible um, really are written by God, then they're not going to necessarily be happy with the idea that, that the, the five books of Moses have more than one author and debate with each other and therefore betray a certain human side insofar as they're unsure about something, they're, they're fallible about something. So at this point, I'm going to go back to, to, to giving a more, a more specifically conservative answer. I think that for, at least for myself as, as a religious Jew, the reason that I'm not really upset by the idea that the Bible debates with itself, that biblical authors disagree with each other, is that most Jewish sacred literature is found in rabbinic texts, is found in the Talmud and related rabbinic uh, works. And rabbinic literature is famous for constantly being full of debate and argumentation. Um, I mean, there's the famous, uh, you, you know, the famous idea that if you've got two Jews in a room, you've got three opinions, um, that Jews love disagreeing with each other, that, you know, if a Jew is, is um, stranded on a, on a desert island and they, they find him, you know, 20 years later, he kind of shows them around and like shows what he's built. And they're the two synagogues. And they ask him, well, why'd you buy, build two synagogues? And the guy says, well, that's the synagogue I pray in. And that synagogue I wouldn't set foot in if you paid me. Um, <laughs> Jews, Jews can't have a religious life without getting into arguments with other Jews. But in rabbinic literature, 
argument is often considered to be something that we do for God, for the sake of heaven, for the sake of, for, for God's sake. Um, that is, disagreeing about exactly how to interpret God's will, that itself, that intellectual activity of disagreeing about, debating about, studying further, the, um, studying further the, the interpretation, the right interpretation of God's will, for us Jews, that's, that's actually a form of worship. Um, that is, it's not only prayer that is a form of worship, it is very often study of sacred literature that is also a very important form of worship, a, a way of showing our loyalty and love and obedience of God in traditional Judaism generally. So you open up the Talmud, and literally the very first page of the Talmud, um, which begins with laws of saying a particular prayer at night, the Shema prayer, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Um, there are laws about when we say that prayer and how to say it. And page one of the Talmud begins with a debate as to, um, well, we're supposed to say it in the morning and the evening, but what does evening mean? Okay, roughly from about sunset, but up until when? Is it up until midnight? <laughs> Is it up until when the sun rises? So page one already has a debate between three different groups of rabbis about how late we can say the evening Shema, the evening, the, 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 this prayer in the evening. Um, how late does evening or nighttime go? And literally every single page of the thousands of pages of the Talmud that follow have, have additional debates. So in Judaism, debating about this stuff is itself a sacred activity. Mm -hmm. And we Jews have always agreed that the Talmud is sacred, is authoritative, but in its current wording is clearly written by human beings. And the fact that these human beings can't agree about a lot of things doesn't prevent it from being sacred and authoritative. Given that we've always had this whole category of sacred authoritative literature whose wording is written by human beings and which constantly engages in debate and disagreement, it doesn't seem to me much of a big deal to say, well, that's true of the Bible too. Modern biblical criticism teaches me, um, and this is biblical criticism written by Protestants, by Catholics, by Jews, some of them religious, some of them non-religious, some of them anti-religious, um, but those many, many biblical critics over generations have built up, I think, a very, very strong set of arguments that convinced me that the five books of Moses were written basically by four separate groups of scribes in ancient Israel who disagreed about a number of things. As a religious Jew, realizing that doesn't upset me because we Jews, have, for, for millennia, we've had other sacred authoritative literature written by human beings that engages in debate. Essentially, what I'm suggesting is that the Bible is sort of the first rabbinic literature. And just as we're not freaked out by the fact that rabbinic literature is in part human and therefore in part, in part fallible, it doesn't upset my faith. It doesn't undermine my religious practices for me to acknowledge the same thing about the Torah, about the five books of Moses. All of this stuff, I believe, is based on a real revelation from a real God, but for some odd reason, the God of the, of the Bible, I think, always wants human beings to put the finishing touches on something. God never creates something in a complete fashion. 
God always leaves something a bit undone. And when God created the Jewish religion, it was no different. God created some broad outlines, but then gave human beings, gave the Jewish people, both the responsibility and the right to continue creating, to continue um, moving towards the completion of the work of creating the Jewish religion. That process began with Moses, um, and it continues to this day. Why God wanted to create something in an unfinished fashion, that's above my pay grade. And Ben, that's, that's why you use the term participatory mm-hmm. theology and, and a participatory idea of the nature of the Bible itself. Mm-hmm. And so, and so the, there's a tradition. The Bible is tradition. The Bible is tradition. That grows yeah. and expands and continues. You know, I just, this is me just riffing here, but I can see some analogs between what you're saying and Christianity. I sometimes sort of like, without pushing the matter too much, I talk about the New Testament as sort of a Christian Talmud. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. we don't know what to do with the Old Testament. Uh-huh. But the New Testament gives us sort of directions of how to think about it. And then, of course, you've got this diverse Christian tradition that comes afterwards, which there are constant debates going on. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a big difference. I mean, one of, the, one of the things that John Levinson told me in graduate, not me personally, but he wrote this, but he said it in a class too, that really turned things around for me was when he said the big difference between Jewish ways of looking at the Bible and Christian ways is that for, for Jews, the Bible is a problem that you get to debate. For Christians, it's a message that has to be proclaimed. Yeah. And when you think of the Bible as a message, which is centered on Jesus, of course, when you think of the Bible as a message, you don't do well with things like, parts of Leviticus are internally contradictory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Deuteronomy and Exodus certainly don't see things the same way in terms of laws of slavery, right? You don't work well with that, mm-hmm. which is really unfortunate because, you know, um, a pro- one reason I'm just so interested in hearing you talk about this is that a, a Christian stumbling block is actually seeing the benefits of historical criticism mm-hmm. and actually seeing the internal dialogue, debate, disagreement within the pages of the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, and saying, my goodness gracious, this can't be a sacred text any longer because look at what a mess it is. Rather mm-hmm. than celebrating the mess <laughs> um, as part of, let's say, the providence of God. Mm-hmm. Are you comfortable with language like that, like the providence of God, or would you put it differently? Oh, no, no, I think that, that's, that's, that's perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think you're right. That you said just before that, for me, the Bible is tradition. Um, I'm looking at the Bible as the earliest form of tradition, and once you realize that the Bible is tradition, historical criticism is no longer terribly threatening. Mm-hmm. Because part of tradition is that tradition is something that's always active. It's, as it's being passed on, it's always evolving. It's always developing. And so, of course, in tradition, you're going to find differences of opinion. Right. Uh, of course, Aquinas sees a lot of things very differently from Augustine. Um, of course, in Jewish tradition, the mystics see things differently from philosophers like Maimonides. Um, And once you realize that the Bible is tradition, well, of course, we can begin to notice differences within the Bible that Deuteronomy and Exodus share a whole lot, but they also differ on certain things. 
so I guess in, in at least in my own theology, I guess I, I might almost say that maybe I'm the exact opposite of the reformers. Instead of sola scriptura, I kind of have sola tradition. Um, it's all tradition, and therefore it's all able to accept historical criticism without losing its bite. And if occasionally I see that something as something in the Bible is fallible, um, that's really okay because tradition is a multi-pillared work. There's lots and lots of different pillars in Jewish tradition. And if I realize there's a little historical error in Genesis over in this verse or some problem in Deuteronomy over there um, or something in rabbinic literature that is, uh, that is a major problem from a modern point of view, um, you know, we can modify those pillars without the edifice of Judaism crashing down because once you're dealing with tradition, uh, you've got a lot of different pillars. So, Ben, maybe you can just educate because this is a different kind of a mindset. And from a conservative viewpoint, you have this unique position. So when you get down to kind of the practice and how you practice your Judaism and your faith, <clears throat> And everything is tradition. So how are you making decisions about, you know, the Orthodox, there's not really a lot of decision to be made. It's there um, within yours. How do you make decisions on how to practice your faith, given that things are fluid and things are debatable? And so where do you, how do you land? I guess, I guess what I'm asking is, how is it authoritative in a right. concrete, practical way? Great question. So for it to be authoritative, I need, first of all, to accept that I can't really make a whole lot of the decisions on this issue as an individual. Uh, if, if I begin to make decisions about what law applies and how the law could ch should change, I'm doing that on my own. Well, then the law is no longer really a law. It's something that I'm using as sort of a palette to make choices from. It's a menu. But there's a big difference between a menu and a law code, or a menu and a legal system. So I think that from my point of view, the first thing to say is that as changes happen, they happen communally, not individually. A community has to start making decisions uh, about where the law can change and where the law should change. And I think that over time, in the long run, it really is communities of observant of law observant Jews who really do define what Jewish law is that it's the entire it's the entire community of Israel or at least those parts of the nation Israel the Jewish people who accept the binding authority of the law who define what the law really is because by definition whatever they're observing that's the law um, on a on a shorter term basis, look, people do debate. There are, especially nowadays, in the last 30, 40 years, there have been enormous debates in Jewish, actually in all of the Jew Jewish movements, Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform, uh, just as there have been debates in um, all sorts of different Protestant churches, and there are debates in Catholicism, especially around issues having to do with gender and sexuality. And different positions have been put forward, in the conservative movement, um, in the conservative movement, there actually are committees of rabbis who make actual um, decision, decisions on questions of Jewish law, who consult classical Jewish sources, uh, including the Talmud, but also later medieval uh, Jewish law books. 
And on these particular uh, particular issues, there have been decisions to to open up the law. For example, uh, essentially to to move towards gendered egalitarianism, not to continue saying that, for example, only men can be rabbis, only men can lead prayer services. Uh, but now in the conservative movement worldwide, it's pretty well accepted that women can be rabbis, women can lead prayer services. More recently, and more controversially. Um, similar decisions were made about homosexuality, basically saying that the biblical prohibition on really on male homosexuality, which is what you find in the book of, uh, that's the prohibition in Leviticus, um, is one that has essentially been pretty much overturned by uh, the, the main legal scholars of the conservative movement. Um, but as I'm saying, I, I think those are decisions that need to be made communally for law especially for divine law to, to function as divine law, that is a, as a law that ultimately results from, from a divine command, there's got to be something bigger than me that's determining what the law is. Mm-hmm. So I can't just on my own go and decide that, well, Leviticus says um, that shrimp is not kosher, I can't eat it, Deuteronomy agrees, and so does everybody else, but I, I'm, I'm going to decide to change the law on shrimp. No, that, that's just not an option. Theoretically, I do think that if major scholars of Jewish law and observant Jewish communities decided that, I think that that would be the law. I can't think of any reason that that would ever happen. I don't think that that ever will happen on the question of shrimp. Um, in some ways, shrimp's a much harder one to change than homosexuality. But uh, <laughs> but if major you on that. Um, if major you know scholars of Jewish law and whole communities. Uh, of people who are observing Jewish law made a, a change about the laws of what's kosher. I think that that, yeah, that that would be the law. The the new law would be the law, but I can't do that as an individual. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. That, that was really helpful. Well, Ben, uh, can I, uh, just a couple of questions here. Just, I, I mean, I want to ask about 40 questions. Mm-hmm. 40 think, would be a good biblical number. We're coming, <laughs> seven questions or 40, one of those two, but um, we're, we're coming sort of close to the end of our time. But I, a couple of things you just said just intrigued me. Um, a question about orthodoxy, mm-hmm. which the way you describe biblical revelation there is closest to what I would call fundamentalism or very conservative or even mainstream evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are you saying that view is a reaction maybe in the 19th century of, of, of the Jewish tradition, or is it more the norm that's much, much, much older? Help me situate that historically. Great. It certainly is older. It's not a reaction in the 19th century to the rise of reform. You can already see that idea certainly being enunciated in Talmudic literature. I think that you can see that kind of an idea to some degree also in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 4 through 5, in the way that it, it reworks Exodus 19 and 20. Right. Um, the roots go back to the very, very beginning. So it's certainly not, a, the Orthodox view of Revelation is not a 19th century reaction to, to the beginnings of Jewish liberalism. Most people would say that that's the only view found in the Bible and that's the main view found in the Talmuds. I think actually that it turns out when we look more closely, that's not the case. A lot of my own work, in particularly in my most recent book on, on Revelation and Authority, makes the argument that the biblical authors themselves 
um, debated this issue more than has been realized, and that several of them put forward what I call a participatory theology in which the words of the Bible are a human response to a real divine revelation. But in Deuteronomy, I do think that we're getting the, a sort of proto-Orthodox theology as well. So as I said before, in some ways, the, I think that the, the Jewish Bible as a whole has conservative elements and also has Orthodox elements. And as a whole, it really endorses the whole debate between conservatism and Orthodoxy more than it endorses the one position or the other. Okay. In rabbinic literature, in the Talmuds, again, most people think that the standard view there is what we call the Orthodox view nowadays. But there have been a number of scholars who have questioned that. I mentioned before the great Jewish theologian, Abraham Joshua Heschel. He wrote a lot during his lifetime, but by far the most important thing that he wrote uh, is a three-volume Hebrew book that he wrote called Torah Menash Shemayim Ba'asbaklaria Shela Dorot, which uh, has been translated into English in this one huge, big, fat volume with the title Heavenly what is it? Heaven, let me just turn around for one second. <laughs> um, I'm sitting in front of my bookshelf, and luckily this one, yeah, this particular book is, is in my, my home office, not in my office uh, at JTS, so I was able to check. It's called Heavenly Torah in the English translation, and in that massive, stunningly learned book, Heschel demonstrates that already in the Talmuds, there were really two different approaches to understanding what revelation was, uh, one of which you could call more proto-Orthodox, one of which you could call more proto-conservative. Interestingly, more recently, a scholar in Israel who taught at Bar Ilan University wrote a book supporting Heschel's thesis. It was a scholar named Yochanan Silman who taught at Bar Ilan University Bar Ilan is an Orthodox university, and Silman himself was an Orthodox man, but he argues that actually when it comes to Revelation, that Talmudic and medieval Jewish literature is much more varied than most people have realized. Um, finally, there's a, a younger scholar who teaches in Israel at Ben-Gurion University who's been putting out, his name is Aaron Wiesel, he's been putting out a number of articles arguing that what we really think of the Orthodox idea of Revelation, it's enunciated in the Talmuds and the early Middle Ages, but it doesn't become the standard view. It doesn't become the view that everyone thinks of as the only way of seeing things from the point of view of Judaism until about the 13th century, uh, until roughly the 1200s in, in the generation or two after the great Jewish philosopher Maimonides. So I think that the Orthodox view is it's, it's one option from the very, very beginning, but the, the assumption that it's the standard view, maybe the only view, that really begins to emerge in roughly the 1200s, which from the point of view of Jewish history is relatively recently. It's not as recent as the 19th century, but it's still fairly recent from a Jewish point of view. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe one last uh, a brief point that you can address for us, Ben. Um, I think it's as early as I have a, a little quote here from page six. Mm -hmm. Say that this way of approaching the nature of scripture should engender humility. Mm -hmm. um, and you have here a degree of doubt that renders religious practice tentative and searching rather than apodictic and self confident. 
Mm-hmm. I think it's just a great way of putting it. This, this engenders humility because we can't simply capture a, a screenshot of the Bible <laughs> and leave yeah. it at that, right? Because well, we can't, yeah, we can't, we can't with full confidence capture a screenshot of God's will. If Rosenzweig is correct, if Heschel is correct, that revelation consisted mostly of a nonverbal act in which God conveyed God's will to the nation Israel at Mount Sinai, then it's the Jewish people's responsibility to translate that will into human words. But all translations are fallible. No translation is ever perfect. Right. Anyone who studied poetry in one language and then tried to and read translations of poetry in another um, know that no matter what, you're always losing something when you translate. Ben, anybody who's married knows that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you're always always gaining something and losing something. And if that's the case, that from the very beginning, the entire Jewish religion is a is a set of translations, then none of none of us can be fully confident that we've really captured God's will quite accurately. And that means, first of all, that whatever I'm doing, I should be conscious of the fact that, you know, maybe we got this one wrong. Maybe this actually isn't what God wanted. I've, I've got to kind of move ahead and, and you know, so, so with integrity, do what I think is the right thing to do and do what my tradition and my community tells me to do. But I probably want to do that with a certain amount of humility and hesitation and openness to admitting that maybe we got God wrong on this. I, for one, I personally believe that, let's say, when the book of Leviticus condemns a man for physically expressing love to another man, I think that our tradition, we just didn't understand the will of a God who is just and merciful correctly. I think that we got that one wrong. And in our own generation, there are attempts, including in my own movement, to correct that one. But, but I've got to admit, by the way, that our attempts to correct, well, like everything else, they're an attempt at interpretation and translation. And maybe our correction is wrong. Um, so it's not just that I should feel free to correct the tradition. I, whenever I'm correcting the tradition, I should also acknowledge that I might be wrong about this one and the Orthodox might be right. At the end of the day, I've got to make a decision and sort of live my life one way or the other. I choose to affiliate with a community that is trying to be, was beginning to try to be welcoming to homosexuals, to gays and to lesbians. Um, But who knows? Maybe we're wrong about this one. Um, That kind of humility is something that I think this sort of theory of revelation should help to to promote. And frankly, that would be a good thing because... Um, even as a religious person, I would, I would tend to say there's, there aren't that many things that are as dangerous as a religious person who's 100% sure that he knows God's will. Mm-hmm. Much, much better off for those of us who are trying to follow God's will to admit that we don't have a screenshot. Right. So all we're doing is translating. Well, um, humility in the face of the divine mystery that... Exactly. It's above and beyond all of us. Well, uh, Ben, listen, we, we need to bring this to a close here, and I, I wish we didn't. You know, the most important thing we didn't mention is that you and I went to the same high school. Correct. Correct. The Pasquic um, Valley Indians of Hillsdale, New Jersey. 
Pascal Valley High School. I know. I, we, I, yeah, I'm class of '82. You're. Well, we missed you're each other. That's right. You were eighty. You were eighty-two. I was seventy-eight. Oh well. So, so we just missed each other. And who knows what could have come of that? Probably nothing. But that's okay. <laughs> in those days, probably nothing uh, was going on both our minds. In any event, yeah. <laughs> well, Ben, it was it was great having you on the podcast. Uh, just as we close here, is there any place where people can go on the internet to find you? Uh, on the internet to find me, sure. Um, probably the best place would be academia.edu. Um, I don't know if people are familiar with that website, um, but if you go to www.academia.edu, actually the, there's a gigantic website in which scholars from all around the world, from all sorts of different academic disciplines, you know, physics, religion, English, history, whatever, um, can put up their essays, their papers, so if you go to academia.edu, it's for free. I think you have to join it, but then you can, you can download anything you want for free. Um, and put my name in, Benjamin Summer, that's, that's Summer with an O, S-O-M-M-E-R. Um, you'll see a whole bunch of uh, my essays. Um, I, couldn't, I, I can't put whole books up there uh, you know, for copyright reasons, but you can read the introduction to my book on Revelation and Authority and get some sense about what that book is about. Right. That's great. And, and yeah, that's, you know, your latest book, Revelation and Authority, Sinai in Jewish Scripture and Tradition, correct? That's correct. A right, right? And that, folks, is a lot of what we've been talking about today on this podcast. So thank you again, Ben, and we'd love to have you on some other time. Sure. Actually, let me add, if people are going, uh, people who, who typically go to this podcast, if you go to the Academia site, You'll also see some excerpts, probably the introduction of my book on divine embodiment right. uh, called uh, The Bodies of God in the World of Ancient Israel, which I think finds some really surprising commonalities between Jewish and Christian ideas about the nature of God, um, areas that a lot of Jews think that we really disagree with Christianity. Um, in that book, I suggest that actually... Judaism and, and traditional Christianity are much closer than many people realize. And I think people for, uh, who listen to this podcast might be uh, interested in taking a Absolutely. That as well. That's a topic for another discussion. That's a whole, that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, that would be, I mean, I, I looked at that and I said, my goodness gracious, that's another thing we need to talk about. So Sure, maybe another time. Yes. Thank you, well, Ben. Really pleasant. Blessings thanks to, to you. both of you. As always, thanks for listening. Just... One time I want to just say no thanks for listening. Yeah, who cares? Every time it's thanks for listening. Is it, Ungrateful. Do you think they're listening right Ungrateful. now to what we're saying? <laughs> I hope not, Jared. Yeah. Is there a delete button to this thing? I don't know. But probably. We're Is there just a not delete button to you? Advanced. To you. You need a delete button. So remember <laughs> to check out Benjamin Summer online, but also check out his most recent book, Revelation and Authority, Sinai in Jewish Scripture and Tradition, where he talks about some of these topics and goes even further with it. Oh boy, and I tell you folks, this is a book that I I couldn't put it down. I know that's cliche, but it's not, because I can put plenty of books down after about two pages. Not this one, I read the whole thing, and I just learned so much, and I got so much vocabulary and so many concepts from what he was saying here. And, it, you know, I blogged about that a few times on my website. So if you're interested, you can go there to thebiblefornormalpeople.com. Again, several blog posts on this book. And also you can follow me on Twitter at Pete Enns and also on Facebook at Peter Enns. Good. And you can find me online on Twitter at jbias, J-B-Y-A-S. Thank you very much and join us next time.